Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, I am hugely delighted to welcome to this latest episode of Bread and Butter a really remarkable man, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, whose brand name is The Black Farmer, very well known to many in the British food world, former TV producer and now food campaigner and my guest. So Wilfred, huge welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your programme. Looking forward to having our chat. Well, the reason for um, for wanting to chat to you is it's, I think you're, you're such a great innovator, Wilfred, and I know that you created a special range of sausages um, to support Help for Heroes in time for Remembrance Sunday last year. And I thought that was just such a wonderful initiative. So I just really love to hear, first of all, your, your food journey. Tell me, um, did you grow up in a family that was really interested in food? If I go right back to the beginning of my story, I'm of the Windrush generation. I was born in Jamaica. Um, it's a place called uh, Frankfield in, in Clarendon. And if you went there today, you'd see quite a lot of subsistence farmers actually working the land. Now, you all know the story. People like my parents came to this country in the 50s and 60s in order to improve their lot in life, not only improve their lot, but those of their, um, their children. And I was brought up in a place called Small Heath in Birmingham. I'm from a family of 11 and I want you to try and imagine this. There's 11 of us um, living in a two up, two down terrace house. So it was very, very cramped, three to a bed. We're very, very, very poor. And I can remember my mother trying to feed all 11 of us with one chicken. And it's not one of these wonderful um, chickens you can now get at the supermarkets. These were the old sort of hens that had sort of past their sell-by date and you had to cut them for about a week just to make them sort of tender. Now, because we were so poor, my father had an allotment and it was my responsibility as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And this is where my story begins because I can remember love being on this allotment so much that I made myself a promise that one day I would like to um, own my own farm. And then every single thing that I subsequently did with my life was to try and to get into a a position to buy this farm. Now, I'm quite happy to tell you how I did that. But one of the things that I always like to tell people is the key thing in life is that you have to have the courage to be audacious. If we were in America, the Americans really understand the importance of audacity. One of the things about being British is that we tend to be a, a bit more cynical and downplay things. I mean, any any entrepreneur, anybody trying something f- um, for the first time in the UK, will know exactly 
what I mean. I think that your station is an example of a quite entrepreneurial new thing to do. It's audacious enough to think, right, I want to change the world. I want to make things different. Wilfred, that's just such a, a wonderful reply to what was a very simple question. I found it um, both moving and and exciting at the same time. And, you know, your very honest account of, you know, the hunger, um, the poverty is, you know, it's something that people find difficult to talk about. Marcus Rashford has been very open. Um, I, I come from, um, my parents came from very different backgrounds. My mother's father came from intense poverty in the East End of London before the First World War. And he used to talk to me about how hungry he was as a boy, whereas my other grandfather came from a much more privileged background. So these things are, they're resonant for so many people, but lots of people just will not talk about it. And I love what you say about audacity and the fact that you, you had this vision of being a farmer. I mean, how extraordinary was that? And now here you are in the West Country. So tell us, so you, there you were in Jamaica and bring, you know, little Wilfred to England and tell us what happened next. Yeah, so the, the, the bit about my the allotment is that when we were in England, in fact, we were brought up in Small Heath in Birmingham, and the allotment that we had was in Small Heath in Birmingham. Now, um, Small Heath was one of those classic inner city areas, which was the pits. I mean, it's been years since I've been back to that part of Birmingham, and it's it's absolutely miserable. That's why this allotment was a real oasis for me because it just meant that you're not con constantly having to look over your shoulder because it was the only place that I could sort of find peace. Now, I went to, in those days, they, they called them secondary moderns. I went to the local secondary modern school in Small Heath in, in, um, in Birmingham. And this school was as much as the pits as the place that I was um, living in. You know, the school that I went to, they didn't really educate you. They really policed you. The teachers hated being at the school. The kids hated being at the schools. It was pretty awful. And to make things even worse is that I am dyslexic and that in those days, people had absolutely no understanding of dyslexia. Um, not that they have much understanding of it um, today. So I left school at the age of 16. I could hardly um, read and write. And then everything about my life seems to be geared towards ending up on society's dustbin heap. And so because I, I wasn't educated, I wasn't bright enough, I joined the army. But, you know, I suddenly I realized that if you've got an ounce of entrepreneurial spirit about you, you do not join um, the army because, you know, the army is all there about doing as you're, you're told, following orders. Whereas an entrepreneur is always challenging the, the sort of convention. So the only qualification that I have to my name is a dishonorable discharge from the army. Now, what's quite interesting is in those days, if you were a failure at everything, they would just think, oh, Jesus, what shall we do with them? And what they used to do with failures like me is put them into catering. The idea was, well, you know, at least they could do some kitchening, portering or doing some washing up or doing a bit of cooking. So I went to the local catering college in, in Helzo in, in the West Midlands. What's interesting about this story is that um, catering then is is not a, it was not as much of a um, a glamorous profession as it is now. It's really the culture, the cult of the celebrity chefs that ma has made catering in this country quite an honourable profession 
to go into it. Back in those days, as I said, it's just all the thickos, all the thick bastards that went into it. And so uh, there was nothing noble about catering. And back to what I was saying to you earlier on about the thing about being audacious and having a purpose and a dream, I found that everything in my life that what's helped to get me through is to always be true to this purpose, this dream of having my own farm. So even though I was earning a living as as a um, as a, a chef, it wasn't really um, going to help me to fulfil my purpose. I knew I had to try and do something else. In those days, there used to be a fantastic BBC documentary series on called Forty Minutes, and I used to love those documentaries. And I can remember saying to all of my family and friends, "Look, you know what." I'm going to try and get into the BBC to get a job as a producer director making TV programs. So you can imagine that everybody just laughed at me. They thought this guy is bloody nuts, basically, because A, I could hardly um, read, read and write. Television is very, very much the, the profession of the Oxbridge types. So they just thought that I was off my rocker. But I've always lived my life on, on two principles. And if any of your listeners want any advice about what are the key things for success. This is what it is. I'm a great believer that it doesn't matter on your education. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter on your background. Very, very successful people have two things. And if you could acquire these two things, you could do anything that you want. The first thing is that you need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused. And what I mean by that is that you're able to get rid of the white noise of living, this white noise that fills up time that is just not going to benefit you to achieve the things that you want in life. So if people sat down and they did a quick audit of what they do in a 24-hour period, they'd find out that most of that time is full of things that are not relevant. And it's only when people are ill or when on their deathbed they suddenly start working out what's important and what isn't. So the first thing is to have ruthless focus. But the second thing is far, far more important than the first. And that is you need to have passion. And people say to me, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the thing about passion is that it defies reason. It defies logic. It helps you get over all of the hurdles that um, life that comes your way. It just doesn't add up. And if you want to understand what like what passion is, I say, have you ever seen somebody when they're in love? When they're in love, they do crazy things. They do things that do not make sense. That is what passion is about. You're driven. The same sort of stuff as being an entrepreneur. You're driven. If you're going to wait for it to make sense, if you're going to wait for it to add up, you'll never, ever get going. So using those two principles of focus and passion, I decided, right, I'm going to write to everybody I knew at the BBC. And I wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters. Nobody wrote back to me. I tried ringing people. Nobody would pick up the bloody phone and, and um, uh, talk back to me. Now, at the time, at, at the, in Birmingham, there used to be a big studio complex called Pebble Mill. And I can remember going up to that sort of complex where they used to have security guards who had these little sheds that they used to um, um, be sitting in. And they used to hate getting out of these sheds to open up the barriers for people. So I said, look, can I come and do that for you? And I'll do that for free. So they just thought, well, you know, this guy's prepared to do it for nothing. It saves them having to get out of their warm, comfortable shed. 
So for months, I'm there opening these barriers, letting people in and out of the building. From there, I then met the cleaners who were going in to clean um, the offices. And then this happened. Um, I remember meeting a guy, and I still remember his name today. His name was Jock Gallagher. And I said to him, look, I really want to get a job in television, etc." And he said, well, come up to his office. And he talked to me for about an hour. And he said this. He said, look, you're not the sort of person that we employ in television because, A, you don't have the education, and, B, you've got a bit of an attitude problem. And he said, look, he said, this is something he said he might live to regret. But he said, look, I'm going to give you a job as a runner for three months and then to see what happens. Now, that man having the courage to give me that break then started a long career in television. So one of the things I'm always saying to people is this. The key thing in life is to find your guardian angel. Find your guardian angel, the people who are going to help you achieve your dreams. Every single thing that I've achieved, somebody has gone out of their way to give me a break. If I went down the route of going through human resources that I goddamn hate, if I went down the conventional way, I'd be still that I'd be still that guy in the slum in Small Heath. Wilfred, this is just incredible to hear, and it's it's touching me on such a deep level, and it's so inspiring. And I want every young person I know and every young person I don't know to hear what you've just said, because it's so unvarnished, so honest, so from the heart, and just so powerful. I salute you. Well, thank you very much for that, because. Um, to continue my story. So I got a job as a runner. I then went on to be a researcher. And then back in the day, I was pretty well known as a director of a program that really started the whole of the celebrity um, chef culture. It was a program called the Food and Drink Program. And then again, another guardian angel, my boss at the time, who became a big name in television, Peter Bazajet. Um, it mm, was my Huge job. name. <laughs> yeah, he was a big protector and a big supporter of mine. And he, um, it was my job to break in all of these celebrity chefs. So I gave Gordon Ramsay his first break in television, James Martin, Raymond Blanc, any big name celebrity chefs, I was a person who had to break them in. And the reason why I was given that job really is because, as you probably know, a lot of these chefs are real hard bastards. They don't take any shit at all. And the Oxford types were slightly intimidated by them whereas I wasn't. And so, you know, many a time, you know, these chefs are the sort of guys that would take you outside to sort of problem out. And I was the sort of person that would oblige because when you're a director, and in those days we used to shoot on film, which is very, very expensive, you know, if you're a director, you had to make sure everybody knew what they were doing. So I traveled the world making programs about food and drink. And, you know, it is worth pausing there because, you know, I'd, I'd been at the BBC now for about, what. 12, 15 years, and you think, my God, this is a guy from society's dustbin heap traveling the world making food programs. You would think the right thing to do is to shut the fuck up, keep your head down, and be grateful for the fact that, you know, you're no longer in a slum. But the moment you stand still in life, the moment you stand still, you will find that things will actually go past you. So that's why it's really, really important to have your own purpose your own dream, because that helps to perpetuate, helps to move you forward. If anybody wants to sort of find out more about me, 
and to understand my philosophy. There's a book that I've written and it's called Jeopardy, The Danger of Playing It Safe. And, you know, if you take the scenario of being at the BBC, I knew that if I was ever going to um, buy my farm, I would have to leave the BBC and set up my own company in order to earn the money to be able to buy this farm. Now, most of your listeners, most people you meet in life, have dreams of things that they would love to do. And the one thing that stops them doing this, the one thing is fear. And that fear means it traps people into survival mode, ending up doing things because they feel that they don't have a choice. The difference between people like you and me, entrepreneurs, people who um, are doing something that they're passionate about, is that it's not that we don't feel fear, is that we don't let fear hold us back. And I, yeah, think yeah. That, and I just think that is a great problem that people, we feel exactly the same fear as everybody else does. We feel exactly the same sort of uncertainty, but this is the trick. I say to people, the trick is to put your arm around uncertainty and walk into the future. You do not need to know the answers to everything that will come your way, because lots of things that you will come your way and you won't, you can't have prepared yourself for, you can't know the answers. What you need to do is have the mindset that says, whatever comes my way, I will find a solution. I will find a way through it. That's all it is. What a lot of people are doing is that they're waiting for the time to be right. They're waiting to feel less fearful. It's just about understanding that fear is a fundamental part of that journey and do not allow it to hold you prisoner. Well said, hurrah. Um, I think that, um, I mean, yes, there are so many reasons for people to feel fearful in the world, but equally, life has always been dangerous and difficult, has it not? Well, it is. I mean, I think the thing is this, is that if you go to one of the developing nations where, you know, there is uncertainty around them all the time, but you'll find that in those societies, it's more vibrant, it's more positive, more entrepreneurial, because this thing about uncertainty, if, if people who think that one of the things about the West is that people get spoiled because they think there is such things as, as um, certainty. Well, COVID has taught us a big lesson that, you know, there is no such thing. It's about actually seeing that uncertainty and, and with uncertainty comes fear it is, 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 is a positive thing. But the whole structure of our society is all based on keeping people fearful. All you got to do is turn the bloody news on you know, this this addiction to news, actually all that's doing is reinforcing this sort of mode of fear. And as I'm saying, all entrepreneurs, all they do is that they wake up in the morning full of uncertainty, like a taxi driver. A taxi driver doesn't know um, how much customers he's going to have every day, but every day he will go and have faith that everything will, will be all right. There's no, there's no evidence for it. You know, if you want evidence if you want data and research to say whether you're doing the right thing again that's just the wrong attitude back to my favorite analogy about being in love when you fall in love there's no certainty that it's all going to work out what you do is that you embrace the uncertainty because actually you know there's far greater delights to have if you're prepared to be able to embrace the uncertainty do that with your career do that with your rest of life rather than just your romantic life so, um, yes, just, absolutely. Here, here. So just to finish my story, then, really. So I left the BBC 
and then decided to set up my own food and drink marketing agency because obviously by that time all of my experience in life had been around food so initially as a chef making food programs it just made sense that actually I will then go on to do marketing of food brands so I launched brands like Lloyd Gross and Sources, Kettle Chips, Plymouth Gin, Cobra Beer big brands now but back in the day they were challenger brands they were startups trying to punch above their weight trying to get um, into the supermarkets and that was in a sense my training ground for what I eventually uh, ended up doing in terms of creating my own brand and uh, I'd run that business again for about 15 years and then that gave me the money to buy my farm and so one of the things I say to people it's very very important to dream early because you know most people think that life's a sprint but it isn't it's a marathon you've got to really put the put the time in and so i used to go down to um devon and Cornwall quite a lot on, on holiday and i loved it so i thought right i'm gonna buy a, a farm it's very very small you know it's, some people call it a small holding and it's just outside a place called launston or lanston i know it place. Yeah, it's just off the A30. It's a beautiful farm, and I decided to buy it. But again, tell me I... how you felt when you first saw it, Wilfred. Did your well, heart start beating faster? Well, it was a mess, to be honest with you. So, what had happened is when I bought it, um, a lot of farmers were getting out of farming. Um, it, this was an old dairy farm, it had no, you know, it's like it just had borehole water, uh, it just had electricity. It was a bloody mess. The whole thing needed um some investment and sort of um development but you know i it's when i'd finished it i felt as though when i created it the way i wanted it i felt i'd sort of completed that sort of circle that i had arrived at all the things that i i, I strive for but with the but what happens is or where the opportunities come because when i bought this farm most of the people up in in London or in in Birmingham used to say that think that was nuts buying a bloody farm they just thought Jesus Christ don't they lynch black people down there because you know you don't find any black people down there and I can remember that when I put up my first polytunnel somebody called the police out because they thought that I was it was it was me growing ganja or something like that so when you're when you're a pathfinder when you're doing something new it, it's it's quite confusing for people because it, you don't actually fit into the stereotype. But I've always believed that it's outsiders who see opportunities and then bring about change. Because one of the things that I'd realized was there's this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. They don't really understand each other. It's as though you're going into foreign territories. And that's when I had the idea of creating a brand that would really um, actually bring those two um, communities together and bring about understanding. So I decided, right, I'm gonna create my own food brand and I, want to, I don't want it to be an ethnic brand because usually if you're black, they think you're only going to produce something for the ethnic community. I wanted to do something deliberately mainstream. So if you look at my packaging, for example, you see a silhouette of me holding up the British flag. I just wanted to say, actually, I am I'm British. I just happen to be black as well. So I decided, right, I want to do something that's very mainstream and quintessentially British. And so... You can't get anything more British than a sausage. So I thought, right, I'm going to develop a sausage. At the time, I decided that there was a market for gluten-free sausages. Believe it or not, most sausages back then were made of um, cereal and real cheap ingredients. They were disgusting. 
And so I decided to do a gluten-free sausage, which meant that it had to have a very, very high uh, meat content. Again, I found a manufacturer who is a fantastic supporter and sort of helped me develop this, this product. And then the biggest decision that people need to make is, well, what are you going to call this brand? And I was scratching my head thinking, well, what the hell am I going to call it? And then one day it came to me. All of my next door neighbors used to call me the Black Farmer. You know, this is a pretty good brand name. Not only is it a, a really good brand name, you know, it's got an edge to it because there's no other black farmers out there. No one else could nick the idea. And But even I was slightly worried about actually going ahead with this. And um, there's a big lesson I'm about to teach you here. So I decided, right, I'm going to put all of this out to research, research it and see what the feedback was. The feedback came back and says, do not call it the black farmer. If you call it the black farmer, people will be offended. And the lesson is this. Research would tell you what people were thinking yesterday. Research would tell you what people are thinking today. But research cannot tell you what people are thinking tomorrow. That is where you need to have faith in your own ideas, your own vision. And if you stay true to them, people will eventually follow. So as you can tell, I decided to go with my gut, with my own faith. And now the brand is very, very much part of the mainstream. It's listed in every supermarket. It's even in the likes of Marks and Spencers who don't do brands. So that's how the Black Farmer brand was created. It's an amazing trajectory, Wilfred. Quite remarkable. And, and you can just feel the drive in your voice. I mean, you have literally had your shoulder to the wheel for years to get to this point, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, and it'd be interesting to see what you think, really, especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're just starting out. It's a street fight. And um, one of the things that I always sort of um, I've recognized over the years is that people who fail when they're starting up um, their own business tend to come from um, a corporate background. And so a corporate background where it's well-structured, it's well-organized, they've got processes and systems in place. They try and take that discipline into a startup. It's a totally different mindset. When you're a startup, you're a nobody. You know, you're on, you're on the floor. And you've got to have that sort of attitude that I think Steve Jobs says, stay hungry. You know, it's, and about switching that mindset is very, very important because... You know, with, with you know, this business, the Black Palmer brand has now been going for what eighteen years, and it's just basically having that mindset of staying hungry for for, for pushing mm. to really stand out. And so, the reason why a lot of businesses fail in in the early years is because you know they don't have the stamina, they don't have the mindset that actually it's a street fight, it is tough, and therefore it doesn't make sense it doesn't add up that's why you need to have a passion otherwise why would you go through all the stressful nights and things like that it's only a sort of a purpose and a passion that's going to continue to help to drive you forward i completely agree i mean i i've only been employed for i think it's five years of my whole working life which is 30 years now and i've always been self-employed and i i've lived that fear i know those sleepless nights you know can you pay the bills can you pay your staff and you know your stomach is churning but there's something that just drives you on this total belief in what your vision is and I remember when I had the idea for our photography awards it was so intense and so vivid in my head I could almost taste it and I just I, I, I'm get, getting that feeling about you and the black farmer 
Yeah, and so what happens you see, is that people like you are not celebrated enough. You know, all these people, you know, myself included, the ones who have the courage to, you know, you know, seize uncertainty are the change makers, the innovators. And, you know, I stand up and I salute you because I just think it's bloody tough and it's hard, but we're the ones that actually make the world go around, bring about change, innovate. You know, that's I'd rather live a life of that rather than getting on a bloody train, going into the offices, you know, um, four hours a day. It's, it's soul destroying, really. So, you know, I would say to everybody, if you want to be truly happy, do something that you're passionate about, do something that you love. One of these things I don't have bloody time for, all this bloody well-being and balance nonsense. The greatest form of well-being and balance is to do something that you love. You only need stress release if you're doing something that you don't like. If you're doing something that you love, it's then passion. And that's the thing to do. And all you've got to do, in a sense, is just get over that hurdle of fear about how I'm going to pay the mortgage. How am I going to pay the school fees? Get over that because, you know, I sent my kids to, you know, to the best um, boarding schools in the country. You find the way. You do find the way. But, you know, you, you've just got to get rid of the safety net and go for it. The best way of succeeding is to get rid of the safety net and just go for it. Wonderful. That is the most joyful and positive note on which to end a really fabulous conversation. Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, thank you so much. I have loved this conversation. Thank you very much for having me and all the best with your um, new venture. Thank you so much and all the best to you. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. So thank you very much for having me on your program. And one of the things I'd like to offer one of your listeners, we've recently started a online farm shop where we have a, fun, a phenomenal selection of food and non-food items. And I would like to give away one box to, um, you choose, you set the competition, one box to one of your listeners, um, as a way of um, thanking you for allowing me on, on, on your programme. 